Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hello, friends. Welcome to OnScript. This is Amy Brown-Hughes, a co-host for the podcast with Matt Lynch, Matt Bates, Aaron Heim, Drew Johnson, and Chris Tilling. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Jules Martinez-Olivieri, Associate Professor of Theology and Director of the Master's in Theological Studies program at Trinity International University in Florida. My thanks to Fortress Press for sending me his wonderful book, A Visible Witness, Christology, Liberation, and Participation, published in 2016. The Spanish translation was released in March of this year. Dr. Martinez is also an ordained minister and co-founder of the Christ Collaborative, an interdenominational initiative focused on disaster relief and community development, established in the aftermath of Hurricanes Irma and Maria in 2017. I'm excited to talk with Jules today because we get to talk Christology and the gospel, and it doesn't get better than that. So welcome, Jules. I'm glad to be here, Amy. Uh, and I want to say that uh, I am in sunny, coldish Miami at the moment, but um, it's, it's, it's good to be here with you and everyone listening. Wonderful. Well, I'm in cold Massachusetts, so <laughs> I think maybe our definitions of cold are probably different. They're relative. <laughs> so to begin with, would you share with us how you understand theology and what your journey into theology looked like? Um, perhaps give us a moment or two that stands out as being particularly formative for you. Yeah, so... Um... Uh, theology implies always an encounter with God, and that is first and foremost um, when we think about theologizing. And the gospel of Jesus Christ provides us with a topography of faith. This is where we locate ourselves in an existential moment in which we say, I trust you and I want to learn from you. So theology presumes that uh, we have a certain kind of knowledge, that we are pursuing a certain kind of life, and that we are in a relationship with God. Now, Academic theology has to do with um, the second moment formal of faith. This is where we're thinking through uh, what we worship, what we believe. And um, when we're talking about academic theology or systematic theology, it is the, the critical, the creative, the spiritual attempt to communicate the truth about the triune God and relate all things to God. Uh, it is a moment in, we, in which we try to organize what God says about God's self in scripture and related to every single challenge that the church faces and the Christians of faith has faced throughout, throughout history. So the first moment of faith is, is where we theologize. We say, God, I believe in you in Jesus Christ through the spirit. The second moment is when we do theology formally as the conceptual elaboration of those truths. Um, I must say that I, I began to study theology um, because of two experiences. The first one was that somebody was telling me about the existence of the non-spiritual demonic world. And um, it was my first time engaging in matters like that. I was the first one in my family to come to faith in Jesus Christ in, in, in a true commitment. And um, uh, as somebody from Puerto Rico and the Caribbean, we are familiar with the whole notion of spiritism and santeria and uh, different um, 
worldviews in regards to the spiritual world. So I was very interested in seeing what does the Bible teach about demonology? Uh, not everybody enters theology like that, right? Through demonology. <laughs> and the second part was that I was, uh, I was in college and uh, I was, this was two years after I came to faith. I was having a conversation with this uh, man. He was uh, a Sikh. Uh, Sikh is a uh, Sikhism is a world religion uh, stemming from India. And um, he was asking me about what Christians believe about the resurrection. So when I started basically explaining that the resurrection is foundational for our lives, that 1 Corinthians 15 says that if the resurrection did not happen, our faith is in vain. He told me, well, I really admire your, um, your faith in the victory of life above death, your faith in hope when things are dark, in human limitation. But let me give you an advice. Uh, don't worry about the historical aspects of that claim. Just simply focus on the experience of the risen Christ in your heart. And, and, and I said, ah, uh, I don't know. I mean, it sounds so romantic, but there's something at odds with 1 Corinthians 15 that is not something that really just happens in my heart. Now, we had other conversations, but that was the second experience that led me to the study of formal theology. So I began to say, well, okay, so what, what does Christianity say about this person of Jesus and the work of Christ and about the spiritual world? And that was my entry into the study of systematic theology. Um, I began teaching, doing youth ministry and things like that. Um, and after a while, I felt called to go to seminary and to pursue uh, this fascination with uh, the Word of God and what God says about God's self in the world. It's really interesting to me how often when I talk to different theologians about their stories, how often, you know, for a lot of my students and such, and I think maybe just in with any academic discipline, there's always sort of a sense that it doesn't hit you in the heart or in the gut. Um, but overwhelmingly, that is what I hear. <laughs> that it's about, an, it, it It starts in a place in that you just can't leave it alone. It's, it's, it becomes this driving thing that's a part of your heart and and um, in, in lived experience where you see both a need and love and all that just sort of comes together in an experience of, of theologizing, as you so beautifully described earlier. So I, I hear a hint there of why Christology ended up being a particular interest. <laughs> so, so let's dive right in. I want to talk about your book, A Visible Witness, Christology, Liberation and Participation. So I'd like to begin by asking you to explain your focus on Protestant Latin American Christology. So what provoked this focus and what were and are you seeing that you wanted to address? Yes, yeah, so uh, as a Puerto Rican who was then studying in Illinois and um, experiencing the merging of different worlds, uh, it was the Anglo world, the Latino US world, my Caribbean roots, uh, and then serving in local churches uh, that were majority uh, Spanish-speaking, first generation and second, second, gen second generation from Mexican and Central American backgrounds. I was at the crux of so many influences. Um, it came into a moment in my um, MDiv studies that I started asking the question, 
Uh, how do we as Latin Americans in the U.S. and in the Caribbean and in other, plas in other parts of, of the Americas articulate some of the key doctrines of the faith? Um, I was preaching on Sundays, Jesus saves. So the Latin American church has a strong emphasis on the doctrine of salvation. Um, so I began to, what I would say was awakening from my theological slumbers. Um, or to use Paulo Freire's uh, concept, conscientization. I, I began to become aware of um, how Latin American Protestant theologies made certain emphases that I saw lacking in some of the Anglo theologies that I was being taught at seminary. And it was a matter of emphasis because they both share Christian orthodoxy, they both share some of the Protestant affirmations of the sola scriptura, solo Christus, solo fide, soli deo gloria, sola gratia. But then there was a strong distinction upon the experience of salvation And it was, as I delved into why is, why is that, I began to notice that um, Latin American Protestant theology and then the emergence of U.S. Latino theology shared a common thread. And that was the experience of doing theology from a place of marginalization, from a place of suffering, from a place of explicit political turmoil. The reality of a majority of the people are impoverished. Uh, the reality of... Uh, a social and political uh, violence. Um, so I found myself then asking about what are the inherent public dimension of the dogmatics that I'm learning? So what is the public dimension of soteriology or the doctrine of the Trinity or the doctrine of scripture or redemption or sanctification, etc.? And I found in these voices and in Protestant Latin American theology uh, a fresh uh, gallon of spiritual water in a moment of need when I was in seminary. By the time I, I uh, pursued PhD studies, uh, I kept my pastoral practice. And while I was studying, that became a formal interest uh, to delving into the systematic theology traditions that were present and how they were in dialogue with theologies in the North. And that became my project. So that was the, the emergence of my project came out of um, solid uh, experiential ministry experience, right? And, and theoretical um, interest. Mm -hmm. It's interesting when you were explaining um, some of the, like, sort of the contextual, like political, social, you know, there's a real emphasis in especially certain strains of Protestant, like American Protestant. Um, and I think I, probably classified as Anglo-Protestant, I think, specifically, a really heavy emphasis on the individual, right? Individual freedom, and like uh, when I've been set free from my sins, and like even the way that we talk about what the gospel is. And it's not like, it's not like there's not some kind of understanding that other humans are involved in that. <laughs> um, but there is a distinct emphasis. So, and one, and so I want to move to one of those ways that that emphasis has been expressed and that is in, um, like the concept of liberation. So liberation theologies are sometimes misunderstood and mischaracterized. Um, I'd say by both Roman Catholic and Protestant traditions, um, And I think they have been really transformative in many ways for lived theology. So, of course, liberation or freedom is core to the gospel, right? But what specific commitments make a liberative theology? 
And obviously this is a huge question, so feel free to speak about it however you want in whatever whatever way you like. But I know that when some people hear that phrase, liberation theology, and I'm specifically pluralizing it too there, um, taking a cue from you, um, that there is that there are some assumptions that people make. And I think sometimes because it feels like it grates up against other perceived ways of understanding, like ways of thinking about salvation and freedom, and also just a lack of understanding of context. So, yeah, thank you for that question. Uh, we often in the North, uh, particularly depending on which Christian denomination or tradition you're part of, you're part of broadly evangelical, broadly conservative circles, uh, we see or learn about liberation theologies through the lenses of polemics that were present in the North since the 1930s with the fundamentalist and liberal polemics. And then we shift and we jump to the 1970s and 80s with the Cold War polemics against Russia and the communist. Uh, so we all saw the movies, Rocky, you know, Rocky IV, Rambo. Uh, so, you, so we have a whole social imagery in mind when we think about liberation theologies. But it is important that we speak about liberation theologies as a plural, and uh, there's not, it's not one homogeneous movement, but the qualifier liberation has become a way of uh, describing a range of contextual theologies, that is, theologies that explicitly tell you where are they located and what are they responding to. And, uh, and these theologies are triangulating issues of the world, society, politics, the church, and scripture around themes of oppression and violence and marginalization and discrimination in their respective contexts. So um, Latin American liberation theology that emerges early in the late 1960s and 1970s stemmed first from the Roman Catholic tradition and then it had a huge influence also amongst uh, Protestant theologies. Some of the contributions that I think that are present now that we take it from granted in many other theological traditions is that uh, liberation theologies um, highlight that all theological discourse is always contextual. That is, it is always responding to specific needs that the church is addressing in a certain milieu. Uh, it happens, uh, it, ha it has happened throughout church history, the, even the creeds, even if you think about the first seven ecumenical councils, uh, what we call orthodoxy, uh, they were responding to very specific sociocultural, socio-religious, even political challenges to the faith, uh, challenges to the person of Jesus, to God, to the spirit, to the nature of the church, the world, uh, grace and sin. So uh, the nature of contextual theology is an admission that this is always what we do. So there is no non-contextualized theology. There is no automatically universal theology. It is always mediated through language and to the specific needs of a given context, even as we are trying to speak about things that transcend history. The second element that is a contribution of liberation theologies is an emphasis on the victims or the impoverished masses. 
So when we're thinking about sin, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that, uh, we're not only thinking about the subjective awareness that I'm in some kind of bondage uh, to evil or to, uh, uh, to disobey God and separate myself from my neighbor, but also sin uh, is most uh, crudely viewed in the way that we oppress other people. Uh, different kinds of oppression. So the perspective of the impoverished in systematic theology, the perspective of the victims has been brought to bear on theological method. What in theology um, places a priority upon the suffering masses? What, what, what is it about our theology, theologizing theological discourse that provides a priority to the great majority of the world? Uh, those two elements uh, are some of the key contributions of of liberation theologies to any given theology. Now you find theologies from all traditions that say we acknowledge that our discourse, our, our theologizing is, is contextual. Uh, we're addressing the, the, the challenges that we face in North America or the secularized Europe or a post-Christian condition or whatnot. But liberation theologies, um, as part of their motivating factor, their motor, is that they are responding theologically, generally, not to the secular foe of an anti-theist ghost that is hounding the Christian faith of, in a post-Christian uh, context. No, they're asking the question, not if God exists, but what kind of God exists? So the question is, if a certain kind of God exists, um, what kind of good news is good news to the sufferers, to the victims of sin? And those are questions that I think that all the major traditions of Christianity now today, you know, 50, 60 years after the emergence of the original liberation theologies, we take for granted. Um, but it, they come to the forefront because of that influence from the primary first generation of liberation theologians. Now, it must be said that methodologically, there were other contributions. So for example, uh, classically, uh, Christian theology has called philosophy the handmaiden of theology. And that meant that we use philosophical tools to verify that our uh, discourse and our doctrines are not self-contradictory, that we're not talking about logical fallacies, that we're clear, that we're not contradicting each other. Um, that's philosophy as a tool. But liberation theologies have used sociology as a tool, as a way of reading the sociological conditions that we live in. And when, so when liberation theologians speak about discerning the times, we're not only just saying that um, we are looking for a spiritual discernment, subjective discernment that the spirit provides to the church in order to understand the challenges that the church is facing in any given culture. It's also saying we need the tools from different disciplines like sociology to read what's going on in a society so that we might identify, for example, why is it that certain kinds of evils are duplicated? Now, for some um, thinkers, uh, when you use sociology, depending on the decade, in the 70s, some liberation theologians use a certain form of Marxist analysis to identify or to try to critique the problems of social uh, economic classes in Latin America. 
Remember, you had the emergence of a very crass, dominated, almost imperialistic capitalism at that moment. Uh, it was the emergence of raw neoliberalism. <laughs> so certain parts of the world were suffering this in a, in, a, in a very different way than Western Europe and the United States. So they used that to try to read how do you, how do you uh, interpret the dependent relationships of economic power that were being established by the, the, the new superpower uh, after the Second World War in the United States in Latin America. Now, whether that was a good tool at the moment to discern uh, what was going on? Well, that's another question. That's a matter of debate. But what happened was that in the 70s, in the 80s, when some of these liberation theologians were using uh, uh, Marxist analysis for economic purposes, uh, some conservative uh, thinkers in the North saw that and say, you see, their you is in an atheistic framework. So we should reject be, reject this theology because it's basically one social gospel. They were importing their own social gospel from their battles in North in North America, which was not social gospel, and they're importing the Cold War battles. So therefore, they rejected all these theologians without knowing that these theologians could run laps around us. Because they, they were living with the poor, they were living with people who were suffering, they were sharing also the gospel, preaching, sharing the sacraments, and many of them were martyrs. They were martyred uh, like uh, Oscar Romero in El Salvador and many other Protestants who went unnamed because they didn't have the big names. So that's a, a quick approach to that issue. That is super helpful. and and. One of the things that was so interesting to me about your description is I was thinking about how I think I think it's hard to for us to navigate all of these different streams at once. Like what's happening politically, what's happening to my neighbor, you have all these people with economic disparities and liberation theologies sort of push you into the the complexity <laughs> and like don't let you and don't let you run away from it and and you know, sometimes we just want it to be, I read my Bible and pray every day and I grow, 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 right? Like, I mean, I think there's a, I think there's, and it's a very human impulse to feel like that's just too much for me. Um, I want to just like be in my little church and, 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 you know, Bible studies are great and all these things are great, but um, I do think that there's a piece of, of um, a sense that there's, just, that that's so big, um, and it requires so much. And then what if you get it wrong? What if you're on the wrong side of this or that? And then it feels like you have to answer a lot of other questions in the middle of it. And to me, I, I, when I think about this, I think, well, isn't that the point of theology? Because you mentioned like using like different kinds of critical theory, right? To think about these, these different issues. And I thought, I'm an early church historical theologian. So I thought immediately of a lot of the stuff that I still read thinking about uh, the early church and how they used Greek philosophy, right? 
and how there was no terms because scripture didn't offer the terms that they needed in order to address the questions that were brought up about the Trinity. And so they used terms like homoousius, which were not scriptural terms, but that they did deem to be appropriate for helpful guidance in reading scripture. Um, but there was, there was backlash then, um, one of the reasons, right. There was backlash then and then continuing because, um, of how do you kind of bring these other kinds of ways or other norms to bear on how we engage with, with truth. And that's a really helpful way of thinking about um, why I think liberation theologies are, are challenging, but also how uh, like challenging in, in pastoral ways, challenging in, in ways that are kind of like us being accountable to what the gospel actually requires of us. In, indeed, and, and and many of these uh, first and second generation theologians, uh, they were not uh, ivory tower theologians. Uh, they they had no space or time to do so. Um, so these were people who were engaged in pastoral ministry, in suffering communities, in answering some of the deepest questions from the victims of sin and violence and. And, you know, the mothers who saw a hundred of their sons disappear in El Salvador or under the dictatorship of Augusto Pinochet in uh, Chile uh, when uh, in El Salvador or Nicaragua or Honduras, where you had all these civil uh, wars or coups, attempt to coups, uh, because we don't know the story of how that happens. And. Uh, we don't know the, how involved the United States was in establishing and taking up or down governments. Uh, and then we don't ask how does that was, how that was felt by the churches whom we call brothers and sisters. Um, so we, we are so ignorant of so much history that when we see terms like liberation or stuff like that, we only see it through the lens of sociopolitical battles in our context, which is again, a confirmation that theology is always contextual. Right. Oh, uh, so you're saying we, <laughs> are you saying that we need to actually learn history that is not just our own? <laughs> <laughs> might it, might be, be helpful. Might be it helpful. might be helpful. It might be helpful. Especially, it might be right, helpful. Because I, I think as Christians, this is a commitment, right? Like every tribe, every nation, every tongue. And then so, I mean, just as, as being a human, it's helpful to know where people are coming from. But I think that there's a specific call for Christians to, to how do you love your neighbor if you don't know your neighbor? Um, anyway, I, we could talk about this all day, but... <laughs> Uh, I do. I, I want to get a little bit specific because you you do some one of the th things I really appreciate about appreciated about your book was how you gave a lot of sort of um, kind of extended uh, introductions to different theologians um, and different kind of ideas. You, you talk about these common threads in Protestant uh, Latin American theology, um, and you do this throughout your book, but. You, you bring up a few events and contributions of a few theologians specifically there, and, uh, and then you bring in some assessment there uh, of these different ones. And maybe it be, might be nice uh, for you to maybe introduce us to one of these theologians that has been specifically important to your work um, and to talk about and maybe use that as an uh, a way of talking about a couple of those common threads that you were mentioned that make um, Protestant Latin American theologies kind of distinctive. Yes, yes. Thank you. Uh, so um, in, in, in my book, I 
basically follow uh, a way of organizing the different phases of Protestantism in Latin America. Uh, and this, this comes from Jose Miguel Bonino, who's a Methodist theologian uh, in uh, Argentina. And part of the common threads is that uh, we find different phases uh, of Protestantism. We find the uh, ethnic phase, we find the liberal phase, we find the evangelical phase, we find the Pentecostal phase. And he was referring to the liberal uh, uh, phase of Protestantism. He, refer he was re more referring to the historical denominations. Uh, Presbyterians, Lutherans, uh, Episcopalians, etc. Uh, the evangelical phase, he was referring to those who have their heritage in the holiness movements and that somehow emerge with both a strong emphasis on conversion and, and the place of preaching the word of God, but with a strong emphasis also on social transformation, which is not necessarily the same emphasis that you find in the holiness movements in, this, in, in North America. Uh, the Pentecostal phase, uh, phase of Protestantism was uh, is, is just the biggest one, um, exploding in growth. Uh, and the ethnic phase uh, for, refers to the indigenous communities that were not necessarily product of missionary work, but they are internal growth from original indigenous work. Um, when we see the common threads there are basically the emphasis on the experience of salvation grounded in Christ as salvation from personal and societal sins. Why? Because sin was not simply viewed as moral failures of the individual, which certainly that's part of it, but sin is, was viewed as a whole condition of existence in which God has to interrupt, interrupt the flow of history to liberate you and your community from patterns, whether they are internal or external. That is, whether it's your own fault or whether it's somebody who's placing upon you their own evil. So uh, the faces of Protestantism uh, reflected these, um, these common threads uh, that were doctrinal priority and existential priority. One of the biggest names that uh, we can find is the name of René Padilla. Uh, René Padilla, uh, New Testament scholar, missiologist, He's, he was one of the co-founders of the Latin American Theological Fellowship, which today we have chapters in Illinois, in California, in Florida, uh, and then throughout Latin America. And René Padilla with uh, Samuel Escobar, who are both alive, today, uh, they were some of the people that coined the term Misión Integral, holistic mission. Now, if you read everywhere now in any literature, Christian literature that talks about holistic mission and uses that term, you have to end up referring to the Latin Americans because oh, Samuel Escobar and René Padilla uh, were some of the ones who basically elaborated the concept of Misión Integral or Integral Mission, Holistic Mission, to explain that there is a unity of justification by faith and the struggle for justice. There is a unity between faith and the works of justice. There is a unity between the spiritual needs and the material and physical needs of the people. There is a unity between personal and social dimensions of the faith. No dichotomies, everything is integral to the gospel. And in the first uh, uh, world, uh, 
Council of Evangelism in Lausanne, uh, with you know John Stott was one of the protagonists there. Uh, Padilla, uh, in one of the plenary uh, sessions, stood up and said, "We reject the dichotomies that are found uh, in our Anglo-centric uh, brothers and sisters. That you, uh, instead of." portraying an integral view of how God saves from all kinds of evil in scripture, you only want to emphasize that God saves you personally from your own personal sin. But we, as part of the church, wants to we want to remind you that the mission of God is holistic. From then on, from the 70s on, you find a whole host of literature that uses that kind of language normally. So that's one of the great contributions of Protestant Latin American missiology on, with a great focus on Christology to our discussion. So René Padilla, his book Mission Between the Times is one of those uh, key books that you want to pay attention to. And the Latin American Theological Fellowship is, is one of those signs of the consolidation of these evangelical uh, intuitions. Um, now, when I say evangelical in Latin America, it's not the same as evangelical in North America. So uh, what we have in common is that evangelicos in Latin America, uh, we share the, uh, the, the kind of the priorities of the solas of the Reformation. The, the priority of preaching the gospel, a Christ-centered uh, view of salvation, uh, and that's it. <laughs> uh, so evangelicals uh, will at the same time uh, will preach that God is the one who changes societal structures, that sin has a communal structural dimension that the gospel attacks and deconstructs. Uh, evangelicals are not uh, identified as being politically conservative. Um, so, and there is a strong missiological concern with the reformation or transformation of all society, all levels of culture under the guidance and lordship of Christ. So uh, that's a, that, 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 there's a contrast there when we use the word evangelical or evangelical uh, to uh, North American evangelicals. Uh, but let me just say that uh, nowadays the term is so muddy that uh, we don't know exactly what people mean when they use the term. Uh, I, nobody does. <laughs> you don't know what I'm saying. So I'm just saying that classically, uh, uh, those are some of the distinctions. I thought about this, you know, because, you know, evangelicalism isn't a denomination, you know, it's just this big soup of all sorts of different things. I, the way to exp I explain it to my students is I use these like different umbrellas, like just kind of cast, there's like this giant like outdoor seating umbrella and then like these other umbrellas underneath that umbrella. Then some of the people under this umbrella are not interested in the people under this umbrella, but sometimes they're under the same umbrella. <laughs> and I thought, what would it be like to get everybody, like to have some kind of conference where we're like, so what are we exactly? How <laughs> would never happen? because we can't decide <laughs> we couldn't even decide how to like have that kind of thing right it's just it's a really interesting moment in church history um Angel, indeed, indeed. and in the, in the case of U.S. Latinos that are influenced through Latin American theology uh, that kind of uh, we, we might call it liminality 
That is, we, we feel that we, are, we live in the middle of multiple convergences of faith in the Christian tradition, multiple doctrinal emphases, multiple uh, experiential traditions that it is hard to simply say, oh, I'm just this or I'm just that. Even though people love to categorize people, right? Just tell me where you are. Just tell me, are you a, an evangelical but are, but are you truly one? And you're like, you still, I don't know, I don't really know what you mean. I just don't know if that even exists like, now. Which definition <laughs> but, are we going with here? Because there are like 20 yeah. of them. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, so many of us live in that liminal space. Uh, and uh, so my, you know, uh, you know, Anglo theologians, brothers and sisters also, they feel the same way. They're like, well, I'm in the, I'm in the process, I'm in the way. <laughs> Uh, we, we might have to return back and say, well, we're just going to call ourselves the people of the way, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, go back to Acts. Yeah, there, there is a, a really important moment right now, sort of self-reflection. Well, I hope we have a moment of self-reflection. Um, and also just a, a sense of, you know, who are we, what are we, what defines us? I want to turn though to some, uh, specifically on Christology, um, because I'll just read, you know, this argument that you offer at the beginning of a chapter, because I want to bring together these two things that you've hinted at a few times, um, soteriology and Christology. So you say, what I argue here is that Protestant Christologies move from a focus on the history of Jesus and its soteriological significance toward an account of Jesus Christ as the divine son that calls for participation in the mission of God. Now there's a lot going on in that really in that in that argument there. So would you unpack that for us a little bit, and then from there I, I'll move us into your specific contribution about uh, the theodramatic framework. So know that that's coming next. Yes. Um, so when I say that the, the first part, I say you know Protestant Christologies they move from a focus on the history of Jesus. I admit, and I'm saying there are different kinds of Protestant Christologies, but, but, he, but here's a common core, whether they, they are the liberal phase, the evangelical phase, the Pentecostal phase, or the ethnic phase, uh, these Christologies uh, <clears throat> focus on the historical Jesus. That is, uh, not the historical Jesus merely as the history of the true Jesus that can only be found through historical empirical means that can be duplicated, etc. Not that kind of historical Jesus, but the history of Jesus as it is narrated in the Gospels, uh, as happening in the uh, Second Temple Judaistic Roman Imperial context. Um, so... There is this emphasis on Protestant Christologies, focus on the history of Jesus, his words, his specific actions, his options, his choices, uh, his confrontations. And then from there, uh, they place an emphasis on how the doctrine of salvation is key to understand what Jesus was doing. So there is a soteriocentric view of Jesus. That is, it is concentrated upon a notion that this Jesus comes to save people. Now, here's the nomenclature of liberation comes. Liberation refers to the historical aspect of salvation. That is, if Christian salvation has both history and eternity in mind, 
then liberation is the term that refers to the historical anticipation of what happens when God rescues a people. And to, to evoke liberation, to have that soteriology in mind, then is to locate the community in a way that the community can participate in what Jesus the liberator is doing in the mission of God as the one who is sent, the missions of the Son and the Spirit. So to read again the, the thesis statement and the claim Protestant Christologies move from a focus on the history of Jesus, historical Jesus, his choices, confrontations, his acts, and its soteriological significance and liberation uh, toward an account of Jesus as the divine son. And what we find here is a high Christology. You want to confess that he's the second person of the Trinity that is actually imbued in historical matters uh, that calls the church for participation in the mission of God. It is because this Jesus does these things that he can call his own community, the messianic community, to extend the logic of his actions. Yeah. I love that participatory focus there because um, it's a real sense in because a lot of the ways that uh, specifically even even evangelicalism, I think that we talk about soteriology, um, it, it, there's a lot of really good emphases there, but that that's that piece of saved for that 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 what are we saved for or saved into like what is i mean there that language is kind of there like we know we're supposed to share the gospel we know we're supposed to be you know working you know having self sanctification and but there's this real sense of that language of participation um which you know i'm very familiar with working with early eastern christology and and trinitarian theology but um isn't something that it, like we've needed some more of that work in the tradition that brings that in, that connects us um, to accounts of soteriology that make sense in the tradition, <laughs> like specifically in Protestantism. Um, so I, I really appreciated your, the way that you articulated bringing those together. And I think moving into um, towards the end of your book, your, your longest section is where you flesh out, what you call a theodramatic framework moving toward a Trinitarian Christology. So not wanting to have, you know, these two huge <laughs> portions of doctrine, Trinitarian Christology, like they're just so big and we know they're intertwined, but like it, we, it's just really hard to talk about them both at the same time. And um, so I'm going to read a short section here and I'd love for you to talk about your proposal so you say, quote, a theodramatic Christology constitutes a way of articulating the agential relationships between God, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, and humanity in terms of divine action. God's acting to liberate humanity from the bondage of sin through Jesus Christ, his Messiah and Son. God acts in the world and in history. The story of the God of the Christian scriptures can be conceived analogously as neither a divine tragedy, tragedy nor a comedy. <laughs> it is a drama, a relational performance. Yes. <laughs> Again, a lot um, going on there, but I... Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot, for sure. <laughs> but, I think it, 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 but I think it's helpful, and, um, and, and I, I'd like for you to talk, expand on it, because I think there's a way for us, because... I mean, you know, talking with people about like the Trinity and Christology, like immediately feels like you ejected into the stratosphere of intensity. 
but I feel like your proposal can bring it towards an intimacy that I really appreciated. So yeah, so, so the key is the relational performance piece. Uh, usually, uh, when we talk about Trinitarian Christologies, uh, are deployed or doctrinally explained in order to safeguard the divinity of Jesus, uh, to safeguard the logic of the mission of Jesus and the Spirit, the intelligibility of the triune confession and Christology. And there is a, there is a, a, a strong place for that in classical Christology, but usually uh, we don't pay attention to it as the groundwork what the relationships that we see in Jesus' own ministry between him, the Father, uh, and him and the Spirit as providing the narrative content of how Jesus and his community should act and live. So Jesus lived, acted, and uh, spoke in a certain way that is and should be paradigmatic for the church. Um, now, that doesn't mean necessarily that the church has the capacity to duplicate some of the most theodramatic moment, moments that I call theodramatic moments, uh, like Jesus' baptism, Jesus in the desert, Jesus' transfiguration, uh, etc., uh, et or Jesus' uh, sending of the Spirit uh, in John, for example, the pre-Pentecost uh, scene, you know, I, I, I blew the Spirit upon the, the disciples. Uh, whatever that means, uh, the church cannot duplicate those moments, but yet the church is implicated in every kind of messianic performance. So uh, when, we, when I talk about theodramatic Christology, it is a way of coordinating and putting together how the historical relationships that we see of Jesus with the Father and the Spirit are constitutive not only of his being, but of his work. And if they are constitutive of his work and the church is part of that work, then they constitute us also. And they don't constitute also us only ontologically in the being or the nature of how things are, but practically in the, at the level of how it is deployed in history. So that's why I say that the story of the Christian scriptures can be conceived analogously. I couldn't say it either. So right, as an analogy, as an analogy to a drama, not a tragedy, not a comedy, but a drama. And the, and the emphasis here is that uh, when we talk about drama, we're not talking about fiction. It's not about fictionalizing. Drama highlights the centrality of communicative actions. You see, you, 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 when you speak, you communicate. When you act, you're also communicating. And the incarnation in this model that I'm following from uh, my Dr. Vater back in the day, Kevin Van Hooser and Urs von Balthasar, uh, the incarnation is the historical movement of the main actor of the story in history itself. So uh, the producer of the play becomes the actor and we are then called to duplicate his actorship. 
Which is to, different, to, yeah. and you and you make this point a couple times because um, some of our listeners might be familiar with like uh, the social trinitarian perspectives of how like uh, how community how community reflects like uh, the community or whatever term you want to use for the Trinity reflecting upon the church. But uh, what I appreciated about your perspective, you you drew a pretty distinct distinct. Uh, pretty distinct distinction. Uh, <laughs> obviously, <laughs> we're both struggling. Uh, but the the uh, the fact that it's specifically Christ, right? Like we're not talking, you're not talking about how um, the drama is like we're sort of enveloped in the drama of the Trinity. Like it, this is specifically because uh, through Christ we participate in God. Um, but that specifically, the, that's where the Christological piece is necessary for that participation to work at all. Um, so you can't, that one-to-one comparison doesn't quite work. And I really appreciated your, um, cause I think some, I've, I've read some things that go on very extended <laughs> explanations of, of how this is, you know, it's not the same thing or whatever, but I appreciated your clear, um, articulation of the distinction there. And this is also a way of anchoring this notion that if we're going to talk uh, about liberation as a historical experience, then uh, I need to take seriously the patterns of testimony that are rendering how God liberates people. So for Israel, the paradigmatic event of liberation is the Exodus. Uh, and the Exodus is repeated in the, in, in, in the Psalms, in the prophets, as remember what Yahweh did exactly like that? That's the ground, that's the sacred memory that we should be, bring to bear right now in this moment of extreme suffering. Now, um, they were not, in Israel, we don't find like the prophets or the Psalms saying, yeah, remember when God liberated you in your, the, the confines of your heart? They don't, they don't speak like that <laughs> because that's not the referent. The referent is a historical event. God, Yahweh, liberated Israel, this uh, ultra small group in the middle of an empire from potential genocide. Um, so when we come to the New Testament in Jesus, we see him proclaiming that the kingdom of God has arrived, that the true king the images of how God rules over a people are fairly dramatic in communication. So people were not saying, oh, finally, I will be free from my internal dispositions of immorality. Well, of course, if they were faithful Jews, they know that the law has to do with the heart. But the primary focus is, whoa, Yahweh is doing something historical here, extraordinary. And that's why you had some people that say, well, I think then it's time to get rid of the Roman Empire. <laughs> so, so it was understandable that they would uh, interpret part of Jesus' teachings like that, and they wanted to push Jesus in another direction. But Jesus was going for an even deeper cosmological take that will see the inauguration of the kind of reign that he would establish. And if you consider, I don't know, you know, the, the Sermon on the Mount, chapters five to seven in Matthew, for example, uh, you might consider them as the constitution of his reign. Uh, so this is the type of community that he's shaping. Um, now, w what I try to do in my book is to say, you see, this is where Latin American Protestants 
evangelicals distinguish themselves from some of the liberationists in the Roman Catholic tradition because the evangelicals were saying we need to be as dogmatically robust to anchor any notion of a historic view of liberation uh, in order for this to make sense. And, all, and everyone needs to respond in loyalty to this reign. And that was something that was underdeveloped in many Roman uh, Catholic uh, liberation theology textbooks or, or works. The, the, the implication of repentance and conversion and the deeper life and things like that. Uh, so the evangelicals tried to say, we, we want to grant you this, but you need all this uh, dogmatic density and let's bring that to history. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Well, we're going to switch gears wildly here from so, so this big cosmological, largely historical thing. And I'm going to ask you some some quick questions. So <laughs> I know we theologians right, are ready. not are not keen on quick questions, but um, so right. just off the cuff, brief responses. So kind of right. uh, okay, right. be be relatively unfiltered. All are right. you right. a morning or a night person? Night person. Oh, yeah, no, morning person. Uh, <laughs> I've decided that you are wrong in being a night person. <laughs> what is your favorite holiday tradition? Favorite holiday tradition uh, is the Three Kings Day, January 6th, Epiphany. Uh, so, so, so Three Kings, my kids will get a second round of gifts, uh, and that happens in many places in Latin America. Uh, so the story is that the three kings, uh, the same way that they brought a gift to Jesus, they will bring a gift to you and leave it under your bed. But you have to leave grass for the camels to eat, grass and water. If you don't leave that, they won't leave you gifts. Which honestly is a healthier <laughs> response than maybe uh, cookies and milk. On <laughs> it's healthier. <laughs> uh, what is the most significant book in theology in the last 50 years? Ooh. Now notice not necessarily one you like, but significant. Yeah. Significant. Wow. Uh, 50 years. I'm, I'm, I'm doing the math. All right. Oh, uh, yeah. I'll, I'll just say Gustavo Gutierrez Liberation Theology. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, what's your comfort movie? My comfort movie, um, Last of the Mohicans. Really? <laughs> Daniel Day-Lewis. The, well, the soundtrack is... The soundtrack is amazing. Yeah. It's beautiful. Best band or musical artist ever. First one that pops in your head. Ooh. Uh, so, Arya Smith has to be there. Mm. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. What's one idea in theology that you think needs to die? <laughs> <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> Let me see. I get oh. such interesting answers to this. I love wow. asking it. Yeah. Um, eternal subordination of the sun. Bravo! <laughs> <laughs> There's a whole lot going on underneath that one too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That and everything related to all, it. All the things related to it. <laughs> What is your favorite magical or mythological animal? Huh. Yeah, dragon. Oh, yeah, of course. 
Yeah. Tea or coffee? Coffee. Good call. If you got a day to hang out <laughs> with any theologian, living or dead, who would it be and why? I don't think that maybe one, but I think that I, if, if, I, if I can get into one of those uh, medieval monasteries of the mystics. Oh, yeah. Uh, these people were the early Pentecostals. They, I, they were onto something there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> so one more question for you to kind of bring this around to, you know, uh, some real practical kind of working things out here. So I want to come back to, I, when I introduced you at the top of the podcast, I briefly mentioned that you founded the, or co-founded the Christ Collaborative Initi Initiative after the Hurricanes Irma and Maria. Can you tell us a little bit more about this? Because there's still an assumption that professors don't do the real work, uh, that we're sitting in our offices, reading books and having thoughts all day. Uh, well, leave aside for a moment that I would love to do that, to sit in my office for a week or two <laughs> and read and just have thoughts. That sounds delightful. Um, but for many of us, right, research, our research is the impetus that drives all kinds of actions and such. So would you tell us about the Christ Collaborative and how being a theologian is connected to, with that work? Yeah, in the aftermath of the hurricane, Irma and Maria, there was total destruction in Puerto Rico. Uh, people outside our country knew more than we knew about ourselves or what was going on. Uh, I was without electricity for three months. Uh, other people were about, up to six months without electricity. And uh, 10 days after the hurricane, uh, a group of friends, pastors, we got together and uh, we, we said, okay, our churches were not, our people were not necessarily destroyed in this way. What can we do? And uh, we started with something basic. We started uh, with finding food and water to bring to the most impoverished and desperate parts in Puerto Rico. And then we started thinking, uh, how can we provide a sustainable, propose a sustainable way in which uh, we can use the different strengths of different churches in a collaboration. And that gave birth to seven key churches, seven key pastors who got together and we said, okay, um, how are we gonna make this gospel good news to everyone? Um, how are we gonna go with uh, with gospel words and gospel actions to affect people. So that started the Christ Collaborative. Uh, it became the largest, more extensive work of evangelical churches collaborating together. Uh, it extended, it started with seven and each seven had influence upon other churches. So there were hundreds of churches at, at, uh, at one point. Uh, we made uh, hundreds and hundreds of trips uh, providing food water generators we connected with churches in the north in the united states who started sending resources and uh, we immediately started um, providing um, seminars of, on emergency relief and how to frame that on 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 theological uh, categories how is it that this gospel needs to be shared in this way, in this context. We were facing issues of politics and corruption. Uh, we were facing, uh, you know, our role expanded to be, to be people who confront, who confronted the, the governmental authorities in, the, in our search for water, uh, to uh, 
to collaborate with the Coast Guard. We were sending uh, GPS pins to helicopters of the Coast Guard uh, because they didn't trust some of the local authorities to tell them the right information. So our church, we were sending people to the mountains, sending GPS pins to helicopters so that they could deliver food and other uh, aspects. Um, as a collaboration, it was churches from different traditions and our local church, me and Pastor Ronnie, uh, one of our contributions was to provide a theological orientation of, of, of everything that we're, we were doing. Um, some churches were receiving pushback from the members. Why do we have to do all these social issues, you know, social, uh, political challenging? And we just feed people and then just take care of our community. And we were like, no, we need to do everything at the same time. Um, and this is part of why we are faithful witnesses to the mission of God in this context. Um, two years later, three, three years later, uh, there's still work being done. Um, each church adopted a community and we adopted a kind of a, a asset community development. I use these terms at the moment with ease, but at the, when you're in the middle of the tragedy, you are trying to learn to read, to call people who are experts in the field. And you, as a pastor, as a professor, you're trying to learn in order to communicate it to others. Um, so, uh, the seven churches, everybody's still doing amazing work in impoverished communities, adopting schools, adopting communities for three, four, five years in the long run, collaborating with churches in the United States who are asking, how can we help? And, uh, we, has, we established the, the right way of doing short-term missions, <laughs> uh, where you ask, uh, as, a, as a church who was interested in going, to, for example, to Puerto Rico or Guatemala, you ask the local church, what do you need? How can we come alongside, collaborate with you in a way that is sustainable after we leave? <laughs> and uh, we want partnerships that are for two or three, four or five years. Uh, so in that process, we, we did theology, we did mission, we did preaching, we did healing, we did feeding, we did uh, political uh, confrontation, we did everything. And uh, we told our people, our pastors and church leaders in, in these moments of national disasters, whether it is social or natural disasters, we need to claim that every inch of the world is under the Lordship of Jesus. How we demonstrate that, that's our mission. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing about that. Um, you know, especially it, when tragedies happen, right? It's like, it's really on the front of everyone's minds. Um, but then, you know, I think of Haiti. <laughs> I think of, you know, a lot of uh, how long it took for, and still continuing the aftermath of even Hurricane Katrina. Like, I mean, just these... Um, the extension of of disasters and how the limitations of of our attention, the limitations of of, of resources of government, saying you know we're going to help you for this many months and then we're done, and what's left but the church, <laughs> um, and that's and that's a we we need to learn how to do that. Uh, it's not automatic. Um, we have to learn how to interface, and so that's. Um, 
And you had to learn while it was happening, which I'm sure was not easy. Yes. (laughs) And we realized really fast that in any kind of social crisis, uh, natural disaster or even political disasters or wars, the first people who are helping the, the people who are suffering the most are not the UN, are not the state, are the churches. I mean, the, the, the largest network of churches, I think, is uh, right now one that is influenced by World Vision. So when, when the tsunami happened in Asia or the earthquake in Haiti or the first people who are the true first responders are churches. Uh, so uh, I believe, still believe that the local church is the hope of the world. That's a good place, I think, to wrap up. (laughs) What a delight it was to talk with you today, Jules. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. Thank you. It's been an honor to be here. Uh, I've laughed. We talked about some deep stuff, but hopefully very relevant and, and things that are dear to any disciple's heart. So this is your host, Amy Hughes with OnScript. We've been enjoying a conversation today with Dr. Jules Martinez Olivieri, Associate Professor of Theology and Director of Masters in Theological Studies at Trinity International University in Florida. His book is A Visible Witness, Christology, Liberation, and Participation. It is published in English and Spanish by Fortress Press. You can find links to these books on our website, onscript.study. Thank you for joining me today, friends. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study donate.